Hello, dreamers. Welcome back. We're back after a bit of a post-quarantine hiatus. Thanks for joining us. It's good to be here with you. If you're interested in avoiding the apocalypse, you should stick around for today's conversation because what got us here as a species may not take us much further. At least that's what our next guest thinks. And we found him pretty convincing. In this edition of Byzantine Dreams, Carol and I speak with renowned systems thinker and theorist, Daniel Schmachtenberger. Daniel is a founding member of the Consilience Project aimed at improving public sense-making. He's also the single most impressive autodidact I've ever met. He's also quietly mentored many of the people shaping the conversation today around exponential technology. Since we started Byzantine Dreams last year, we've been waiting to have a conversation on sense-making and social coherence, by which we mean literally our ability to make sense of what's going on in the world and the degree to which my mental model coheres with yours. Between the peak QAnon moment on January 6th to the torsions right now around lab leak, inflation, and the Delta variant, it's increasingly clear that, at least in the US, we don't all inhabit the same world. We know Facebook derangement syndrome and the economic decay of journalism are partly to blame for all this, but what exactly is the alternative? Substack? the venture capital media industrial complex. <laughs> we wanted to speak with Daniel because Consilience is one of the few initiatives that are actually doing something about this. But to get there, we first need to dive deep with Daniel about what's actually at stake. We speak with Daniel on catastrophic and existential risk, civilization and institutional decay and collapse, as well as progress, collective action problems, social organization theories, and all the relevant domains in philosophy and science. The conversation starts with an overview of generator and attractor functions. Generator functions are those deep structures or tendencies inside civilization that are often found upstream from existential risk. Attractors can either be dystopic or utopic functions emergent in new tech that potentially drive towards or away from that same risk. The conversation then turns to the newly launched Consilience Project, an effort that takes tangible action against disinformation rather than just talking about it. <laughs> um, and then we circle back to the evergreen question, what does this all mean for crypto and the larger tech ecosystem? The golden thread throughout the conversation is, how can we build a better, more resilient world? What does it take to rebuild systems that are anti-fragile, that optimize for education, democracy, intrinsic motivation, and human coordination? Daniel sees beautiful possibilities in a post-surveillance, post-capital world, one free of catastrophic risk. So why are we having this conversation now? We recorded this episode at the end of the spring as the U.S. was coming out of lockdown restrictions. There was, and still is, a lot of nascent hope in the air. Things are getting back to normal, kind of, <laughs> but the world feels wilder and more open to possibility, both good and bad alike. We hope this conversation with Daniel helps you place your work, your relationships, and whatever it is you're focusing on in a wider, more urgent context, as we all make the gradual transition back to a state of normal that maybe we shouldn't have normalized. But be warned, the conversation can get dense. Daniel is an exceptionally comprehensive and expansive thinker. And for some of you, candidly, thinking about the unwinding of human civilization and human life could be difficult. But goddammit, we think it's worth it. <laughs> so without further delay, here is our deep dive with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Schmachtenberger. 
Today, we are going to talk about a number of things, but right off the bat, we're going to jump into existential risk. So for those of you who haven't thought about this or maybe aren't familiar with the term, we're generally with these topics not talking about asteroids or super volcanoes or something outside of human civilization that is posing a threat to it, but rather deep functions in civilization itself that threaten to discontinue human life as we know it today. Uh, sort of like the four horsemen, there are a handful of generator functions that Daniel, I've heard you speak about. And so before we jump in and talk about sense making, which really is going to kind of be the focus today, I was thinking maybe we could start unpacking these and maybe talk a bit about, <laughs> as a bonus, why, in your opinion, we're so bad at factoring in deep risk. Yeah. Um, Okay, so before speaking about the generator functions or what gives rise to why humans behave in ways that cause possible existential catastrophic risks and why we don't do a very good job at solving or preventing them, we should touch on the landscape of what these things are. Because you mentioned you mentioned some existential risks that are the ones we're not focusing on as much because we're not directly causing them and would have a harder time doing something about them. But they're existential risks, right? A big solar flare, coronal mass ejection, or uh, super volcanoes, or asteroids are definitely nature-based existential risks. And it's not a completely hard division between nature-induced ones and human-induced ones, because let's say we take something like a solar flare, a big enough solar flare that it causes a EMP-type dynamic that would fry electrical circuitry in the world. Well, that wouldn't necessarily be an X risk for a pre-electrical civilization, but for a civilization that totally depends upon an electrical grid that isn't hardened and solar flares are a thing that happen and affect the earth periodically, that's a place where a natural phenomena that we can't control that is almost guaranteed to happen at a certain point, we've created dependence upon systems that won't do well with. So that's, um, you know, that's an example similar to like, obviously the storm situation that was associated with Fukushima wouldn't have been a big thing had we not built a nuclear, <laughs> nuclear plant in that particular zone. So there's something about natural phenomena that cause bigger issues if we build fragile systems that we depend upon in the presence of them. There's, of course, also the way that humans are influencing natural systems in a way that can make certain kinds of natural risk more likely. And climate change is a, the primary example that people are paying attention to. And this is where it's very interesting to look at not just an individual catastrophic risk, but uh, cascade phenomena. So what level of climate change would be required for it to be an existential risk for civilization as a whole? Pretty serious, right? Like take some pretty serious change of climate. How much climate change does it take to cause increasing droughts in areas that already have rain sensitivity that cause human migration and where you have now kind of massive human migration as a result of environmental phenomena that puts resource pressures on already intense political areas that leads to war that might lead to escalating war because they're near higher scale geopolitical events that get technologically amplified. We already arguably saw that in Syria, that there was a drought in an area that had not historically had droughts of that kind. Many people attribute to a climate change mediated type effect. There was migration, there were resource pressures, and it just happened to be that Syria was at the intersection of Russia and NATO type interests. And, you know, that was not that far from a scaled war. When we're thinking even about 
the environmental phenomena, we have to think about not just is this a catastrophic risk by itself, but does it start the beginning of a cascade that can amplify? Also, when we're defining existential risk, uh, what do we mean by existential? Does it mean that all homo sapiens are gone? Does it mean that all hydrocarbon life is gone? Does it mean that civilization as we know it is gone and there's a few people left trying to figure stone tools out? So there's obviously like different levels of what we could think of as catastrophic risk. And well before fully existential, there's no homo sapiens or no mammals or, you know, whatever, our risks that are just <laughs> are things that we should not really tolerate much any risk for. Anything that would regress civilization, human quality of life, and lastingly harm the biosphere and the possibility of space, these are things that we should just avoid at pretty much all costs. And most of the risks that we face are the result of human activity directly. They're self-induced. Obviously, if we think about the first real catastrophic risk that humanity faced at a global scale, it was with World War II and the advent of the bomb. It was the first time we had tech that was significant enough that we could actually not just cause local damage, but cause global damage. And that's kind of an important thing to understand is all of catastrophic or existential risk before World War II was we could face risks that were existential to us. Our kingdom might get destroyed by an invading kingdom. We, we might uh, have a civilization collapse because of unrenewable resource utilization and depletion. And both of those things happen. If you want to study that, there's a bunch of books. You can obviously read the popular one, Collapse, that uh, Jared Diamond did. But uh, Tainter's Collapse of Complex Societies was a good uh, introduction to why is it that all the previous empires and civilizations don't exist anymore? And what are what are the dynamics that lead to them either having internal collapse, kind of institutional civilizational decay, or even if they're externally overthrown, oftentimes they were externally overthrown by foes that were smaller than ones that they had fended off previously because of internal decay of a set of capacities. So we can see that like existential risk for a civilization is something that's been with humanity for a long time, but it's been a local phenomena, right? It might be the collapse of this civilization, but then all the ones around it were still intact. It might be the harm to this local environment, but not the biosphere writ large. World War II was the beginning of having tech that was big enough that we could actually mess up civilization writ large globally and the bio biosphere globally. And so that like, that's a really important bright line in the history of the world. And you can see that in mostly the thing we call history is the study of empires warring with each other. And that post-World War II, the biggest empires couldn't war with each other ever again because we couldn't have escalation pathways to using our nukes. So we had to create mutually assured destruction and an entire new world system based on globalization. What we can think of as the kind of post-World War II, Bretton Woods, IGO, international governance world that recognized that nation state governance alone wasn't adequate to prevent world war and we couldn't have wars anymore because our tech was too big. So the tech too big is a really key thing, right? If we just had stone tools, we could not mess up the biosphere as a whole. We just wouldn't be powerful enough. You went on the worst rampage possible. Like there's just only so much harm you can do. But if you have nukes, it's different. And if you have if you have drift nets where you can pull up a mile worth of fish in one go and continue to uh, grow a population unrenewably, you can, you can destroy the productive capacity of the ocean as a whole, right? Uh, so obviously it's the 
extent of technological capacity we have that makes the ways that we behaved previously no longer viable and very near self-terminating. So uh, a nuclear war would be a self-induced existential risk. That would be ways that humans were behaving. And we can say, oh, it's not self-induced. They started it first. Okay. Well, I mean, self-induced at the level of humanity, it's patterns of behavior level of humanity. So this is where we start to get to generator functions. Why do humans form in-groups and out-groups and then seek to advance their in-group relative to an out-group and even seek to advance some classes within the in-group relative to others within the supposed in-group and utilize all of their technology and service of those types of dynamics? And can we keep doing that shit with exponential tech? Or does that actually lead to, with this much power, destruction of the little finite space that we're in? So if you want a very brief kind of overview of the categories of X risk, there's all of the like escalation pathways to scaled war. And um, obviously nuclear war is a classic example, but even with conventional weapons hitting infrastructure targets with a world that depends upon globalized infrastructure, where the things that we depend upon, no country can make anymore. We depend upon this globalized infrastructure. That's partly in World War II, how we created a world where we wouldn't war is that we were made a world where we had six continent supply chains that we all depended upon so we wouldn't bomb each other. Um, and we'd have more kind of economic uh, cooperation incentive. We can cause pretty catastrophic loss even with conventional war at this point. But there's obviously with AI weapons, bioweapons, there are other categories of weapons that have catastrophic potential. Even things like cyber weapons hitting infrastructure targets can start to have catastrophic potential. So you have all of those things. And like we said, even environmental things can end up causing escalation pathways into that that no one's intending to cause. It's the result of not intention, but the result of externality of not taking certain responsibility for certain things. There's all of the environmental X risks or catastrophic risks, which is basically planetary boundaries, using up unrenewable resources on one side of a linear supply chain and turning them into waste on the other side. So waste can look like CO2 in the atmosphere and climate change. It can look like plastics and microplastics in the ocean or nitrogen runoff causing dead zones in the ocean. Those are both putting some atoms or molecules in places they didn't belong faster than the biosphere can process them that are toxic to those parts of the biosphere. Or the front side of the materials economy, the extraction side, overfishing, species extinction, cutting all the trees down, those types of things. So we can see that running a linear materials economy exponentially, because you're exponentiating the monetary supply to keep up with interest and then to keep up with fractional reserve banking and to not debase the monetary supply, you've got to keep growing the materials economy, but you're running a linear materials economy that is destroying the environment, both on the uh, getting raw resources and the waste management side, as well as the distribution and manufacturing side, you can't run a linear materials economy exponentially on a finite planet forever. So there's, but there's not one catastrophic risk scenario associated with that. There's hundreds, right? There's planetary boundaries on nitrogen, on phosphorus, on hydrocarbons, on plastics, on lots of things. And then of course you have this whole new category of exponential tech mediated X risks either on purpose or on accident, because exponential tech is just so damn powerful that even accidentally, you know, can you have a, can you have some dudes trying to make like a dating app that turns into like a social picture tagging app that just happens to like destroy the epistemic commons and democracy? Um, because the advertising model works by using personalized data and AI optimization in a way that 
maximizes time on site by appealing to people's uh, existing biases because they spend more time when their biases get confirmed than when they get challenged and by appealing to tribal identities and outrage and limbic hijacks. All right. Well, just the fact that it used those technologies with an advertising model ended up meaning that you get increasing Antifa and increasing QAnon, increasing rabbit holes of um, truth perception where people have no shared sense of base reality and increasing antipathy towards each other with increasing certainty about totally different depictions of the world. Can you run democracy or a republic or an open society that way? No, of course not. So that's like the power of an exponential technology that seems pretty benign having a secondary, not even intended effect that's pretty catastrophic. And of course, there are much more serious ones when you start to think about the AI getting even more powerful and starting to move into artificial general intelligence type categories. Uh, similar with biotech, if, <laughs> if you start engineering biology, either through synthetic biology, CRISPR, whatever it is, um, that is not a piece of tech that you create and then it, you use it or not like a nuke, like nukes don't make more nukes, but self-replicating biology that possibly acts like an invasive species with the rest of the world because it didn't co-evolve with it. It didn't have co-selective pressures making it balanced in some kind of predatory, et cetera, cycle. That's a big deal. Like, do we, do we want to create possibly invasive species where we didn't factor what those effects would be for some narrow purpose, release them, and then they're self-replicating and you can't stop it. Also, obviously, the tools to make biotech possible, like CRISPR gene drives, become very, very cheap and decentralized. So not just the accidental applications, but the on purpose, let's create bioweapons for whatever our uh, misanthropic goals are, is now very, very cheap and easy to do and very hard to monitor because it's way easier technologically to do CRISPR gene drive stuff than it was to try to enrich uranium and make nukes. Um, it doesn't take a nation state. Little groups can do it. So exponential tech mediated risks, environmental mediated risks, and kind of um, pathway to war risks. You can think of those as all different human induced things that the scale of our technology makes possible. So this is why we start thinking about generator functions. Cause like, damn, that's a lot of different catastrophic risks. And every year that goes on and we develop new types of technology that have power, we get both more total catastrophic risk possibilities and higher probabilities on them. And so if we think about, okay, well, let's take the three top catastrophic risk scenarios and try to solve those, but there's a hundred more following it. We don't buy that much time. And so rather than think about each of these catastrophic risks as just their own separate thing, to think of them as instances in a class of why is it that humanity is orienting that way in the first place started to be a very interesting line of thought that for me and for a, a group of people that I was interacting with. And um, it's not hard to see that there are some things that are in common to a bunch of them. Like, like very quickly, everybody will see perverse economic incentive is upstream from a lot of these problems, right? If we're trying to optimize for GDP, War is very good for GDP. Increased military manufacturing drives GDP up. Sick people spending more money on pharmaceuticals drives GDP up. Addiction and people spending money on things that they're addicted to drives GDP up. So you can see it's supposed to be that demand is this authentic thing where we only want real stuff. And then there's a competition to supply goods and services 
supposed to be meaning like classical market theory. There's a competition to provide the best good or service at the best price to a rational actor. And we all know that that's not true. Once supply becomes large enough, it realizes it can manufacture demand and make people want shit that won't really increase the quality of their life, but they'll feel like they have to have for status or FOMO or we design things to not be interoperable. So I need a whole bunch of new things to fit with whatever that thing was that everybody's using. And so as soon as I start to get manufactured demand, well, what does manufactured demand on a for-profit military industrial complex mean? That's a big, that's a big deal. Can I have sustained peace and a for-profit military industrial complex is one of the largest blocks of the global economy and similar with for-profit healthcare, similar with, I mean, it's very easy to see it with for-profit prisons, what a perverse incentive it is. But similarly, we can see that the ad model was just a very nice profitable model for Facebook and Google to pick because it meant that they could win the Metcalf law game of get maximum number of users because the value of their thing would be based on the number of users. So don't charge anything for it so that everybody gets involved, but still be able to make heaps of money. So how do we give it for free, but then make heaps of money? The ad model made sense. Now, there were people who were saying it would do that way back then, right? Like Jaron Lanier and other people like that were saying, hey, this is going to do all this dreadful stuff back then. And there would have been no incentive to listen. There would have been every incentive to pretend that that wasn't true. And then when the problems happened to say we could have never guessed it as, and it was just an unpredictable thing and have plausible deniability because there's more incentive to move forward on the opportunity where the risk or the, the harm is going to be externalized to society, but you privatize the gains, then there is to think about the risk slowly and well and let somebody else move forward on the opportunity. So there's something inherent in the nature of like the way that short-term capitalism and venture capital in particular orient and then specifically Metcalf law races orient towards move fast and break things and then get the money and then figure it out later. So how do I prevent overfishing when the fish are worth something immediately dead and worth nothing alive to anybody in the oceans? And then if the other country isn't going to agree to not fish, and we don't fish, then the fish all die anyways. We just lose out relative to them. So fuck it, let's all race to get rid of the fish as quick as possible. How do we solve that multipolar trap, tragedy of the commons type issue? These are hard, but these are these are at the level of kind of generator functions we have to think about. So roughly, if we want to describe all the generator functions, we could describe it simply in, as three things. There's Using increased technological power to cause harm that you know you're causing. Right? We'll call this conflict theory. So that would be exponential technology applied to warfare. So that's one whole set of activities. Then there's, um, and then of course, there's a lot of things that are conflict theory that pretend not to be, right? They know they're going to cause a harm, but they try to pretend that they don't know they're going to cause a harm. And then later say, oh, we had no idea that was going to happen because their incentive is associated with privatizing the gains and socializing the losses. But then there are some things where we just honestly didn't predict it, right? Like there were externalities that we weren't pursuing that externality. We were pursuing some other goal and the goal seemed maybe valuable, but it drove externalities. And maybe we thought the issue we were pursuing was so timely and urgent, we had to deal with it. We can see... Currently, how do we deal with COVID 
is this thing. Well, we have to shut the world down because we can't have it keep traveling. Well, when you shut the world down in a world that depends upon global supply chains, you just stop the movement of fertilizers and pesticides that the agriculture of the world depends upon. So we saw these big bunch of locusts in Northern Africa and in areas of the Middle East that were a result of them not being able to get their pesticides that then drove increased food insecurity for the 100 million poorest people in the world. That was a larger total death scope than the total number of people that might have died of COVID. And that's where you get myopic. And even if you're intending to do the right thing, you might produce second or third order effects that are even more harmful. Um, might that be happening with the way we're pursuing vaccines? Lots of things, right? So you can start to see how even if there's a good intent, but you get myopic, but it, you're doing something really powerful. Well, if you're doing something really powerful to affect one thing, but in a complex system where it might affect lots of other things that you aren't paying attention to, well, that's how you end up generating externalities. So we can call that mistake theory. There's a good there's a good conversation in the less wrong community online about conflict theory versus mistake theory. Do the problems happen because we are intentionally inducing them out of rivalrous dynamics or because we just didn't know better? And the answer is both. But because we can claim that we didn't know better, oftentimes we will do conflict theory and hide it as mistake theory. And as we get exponential power, exponential conflict and exponential externalities are both self-terminating. And then the third one we could kind of say is even more fundamental in a way. It's that the, the technosphere that the humans, that humans build, the Anthropocene, is fragile. We build systems that don't self-organize and don't self-repair. And so we build fragile shit out of the anti-fragile substrate of nature. Where, so basically like you burn a forest down, it regrows. You cut a person, they start to heal. You damage a laptop, it doesn't heal itself. You damage a supply chain, it doesn't heal itself. This is the distinction between a uh, complex and a complicated system, a self-organizing one versus one we build that doesn't self-organize, self-heal. So nature has this anti-fragility, but we're powerful enough that if we keep working at it real hard, we can mess the anti-fragility up. This tree, even though it's doing a million purposes of stabilizing topsoil and providing microbiota and gas exchange and all these things, I won't have less oxygen if I cut it down because there's lots of trees, but I will have the immediate financial advantage of that timber if I cut it down. So for me, focused on narrow game theory, I have the incentive to do that. And it's not going to hurt the whole forest, but when 8 billion people think like that, and with some people with exponential tech think like that, it actually does expand beyond the planet's capacity to keep doing that thing. So we're basically destroying the anti-fragile substrate that we depend upon to make an increasingly fragile world. That's also a underlying kind of driver of catastrophic risk. And so we have to see how do we build a technosphere how do we build a human-built world that is both more anti-fragile and in more long-term harmony with the biosphere that fundamentally stewards the anti-fragility of the biosphere? How do we fundamentally make systems that have less perverse incentive? How do we think about how do we design a world because we're powerful enough that we are actually doing that? And how do we do that well? How do we think about the entire closed loop process that we're making new stuff from old stuff so the old stuff isn't turning into pollution and the new stuff isn't unrenewable resource harm? And how do we make sure that if something fails somewhere, it doesn't create cascading failures across the world because there are redundancies, there are closed loops, those types of things. So if we want to prevent catastrophic risk long term, we have to change these patterns of human behavior that are what give rise to it.
Thanks, Daniel. That's, I think, really great framing. There was sort of a trade that happened post-World War II, and you touched on it with Bretton Woods, right? Where, okay, we can't have um, all-out armed conflict. And so we're going to basically trade that for increased fragility, right? Right. We probably didn't see it that way at the time. We're out of the frying pan, into the fire, and now what is the sort of next recursion? Yeah, there's the whole world up until World War II, as far as catastrophic risk. There's the there's the World War II till now world, where mutually assured destruction prevented the Cold War from turning to a hot war, but that only worked in the mutually assured destruction scenario where you had two superpowers with one type of catastrophe weapon that you could create that kind of force game theory with. But we have a lot more countries that have nukes now. We have much faster nukes. We have the ability for smaller countries to actually be able to induce things that look like one of those countries made an attack. And then we have heaps of new catastrophe weapons, many different types of them that non-state actors can hold. So how do you do mutually assured destruction in that world? Mm, that's, that's very hard. And so that's not the answer anymore. And the answer of, well, the way that we cannot have war is growing the materials economy via globalization so fast, specialization and then globalization so fast that that we get to have so much GDP growth per year that everybody who wants more can get more without taking each other's stuff. Uh, the positive sumness is what allows us to be peaceful. Well, you can't keep doing exponential GDP growth associated with a, with a linear materials economy anymore, right? You hit planetary boundary issues and you can't keep doing the fragility thing. And as systems become more efficient, they become more fragile. They become more anti-fragile with redundancies. And we've made our systems because of economic incentive to be very efficient and also very fragile. So, so yes, the, that whole set of dynamics of how do we prevent World War III that went from kind of Bretton Woods to now, I would say is mostly broken down and doesn't protect us from the new risk landscape. World War II was saying, okay, in the presence of two countries with a bomb, that was one, that was the risk landscape. Now it's in the presence of a dozen catastrophe weapons and more being developed all the time that are held by however many actors that are impossible to monitor with whatever motives they have. And globalization having hit dozens or hundreds of different planetary boundaries um, and exponential tech being decentralized enough that you have decentralized catastrophic possibility um, and exponential rate of change that goes much faster than law or governance can. Okay, now how do we make a world that is anti-fragile in the presence of that? That's the current question that we, that we have to address. And how do you make a world that's not just anti-fragile, but that also doesn't totally suck, right? Because not existential risk is one goal, but not... AI-empowered autocracy is another goal because, okay, well, we can solve the decentralized catastrophe weapon possibility with perfected surveillance. We can ensure that nobody's building CRISPR gene drives or AI weapons or, or cyber attack weapons in their basement by perfectly surveilling everyone all the time and having a perfected police state where we use IoT technologies and advanced satellite, sensor, IoT, et cetera, plus we make everyone surveil each other 
we get sesame credit type things to just proliferate. So we get surveillance and sousvalence. And we machine learning all of that to be able to immediately direct corrective actions. Um, and we even go upstream from there by using attention hijacking technologies to not just maximize time on site, but maximize uh, desirable beliefs and behavior patterns. Um, and then we realized that we have this winner takes all economy that is not a market and that von Mises and Hayek and Rand wouldn't understand or recognize at all where during COVID something like a third of all the small businesses in the U S shut down, but correspondingly Amazon grew as much as all of those businesses combined shrunk. And so you, you have a model where there's more people in the billionaire to centibillionaire class that believe in UBI because it seems like the cheapest way to deal with the underclass, especially as they all become useless on, with technological automation, both AI and robotic automation. We don't need a labor class anymore. So how do we deal with them? Well, UBI and Oculus seems like a nice idea. <laughs> um, so there are worlds that don't go existential risk that also just totally suck, that are dystopic worlds where there is relatively little real human sovereignty, depth of meaningful human existence and creativity and connection is not the thing that's being optimized for. So I'm just as interested in preventing those dystopic attractors as the catastrophic attractors. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Oculus. I mean, you can imagine a scenario in which people just say, look, we're not going to be able to change the deep structures quick enough. Human nature is kind of fell. We're not going to prove it uh, before we hit kind of a breaking point with uh, exponential tech. We just need to funnel all human attention into VR, right? That's that's the blue pill story, right? And it is just actually the thing, like that's actually one of the attractors that is being pursued. Yeah. 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 I think you'll find the dystopic scenarios are not as far away as they seem. One of the ones we wanted to, to double click on is what you talk a lot about in terms of the crisis in sense making. And I'm um, going to do a little bit of a pivot here and ask you about your recently launched Consilience project. Yeah, totally. Our ability for shared sense making is critical to an open society. If we cannot make sense together, what seems like a right choice if COVID is a hoax versus COVID is a real virus? It, the same thing doesn't make sense in terms of what the right choice is. If climate change is a hoax versus it's versus it's a real thing, but it's not that bad versus it's a real thing and it's really bad and really soon, based on what I think is real, what is an appropriate action is really, really different. Well, how do we do democratic process if we can't come to some shared agreement on those things. So how do we come to shared agreement? How do we come to shared sense-making? And if we don't, we devolve into tribalism of those who hold different sense-making, and then those go into war with each other. And that ensures that nobody succeeds actually at the level of global coordination needed to prevent any global catastrophic risk. So either we err on the side of chaos and get catastrophic risk, we don't figure out emergent order and order comes through imposition. And so we get technologically empowered authoritarian systems that have the illusion of freedom or not and an underclass and whatever. Or we get emergent order 
that is adequate to the scope of the problems we need to solve, which means emergent sense-making and emergent values generation, which means there has to be a culture where everyone values good, high-quality epistemics to make sense of the world. They value it enough to invest in it, and they value listening and dialectic and wanting to have nuanced, complex views that, that take all the perspectives and then synthesize them. And they also value civic engagement because they realize that if they do not insist on participating in their own governance, they're consenting to be ruled by whoever chooses to do that. And so rather than just focus on, ah, those are issues that I can't really have anything to do with. I got to pay the mortgage. They're like, no, fuck, I have something to do with the world that I live in because it's moving in directions that are worlds I don't want to live in. So if people don't start valuing that kind of civic responsibility and the capacities to instantiate it, which is much higher quality sense-making and much higher quality good faith conversation and dialectic, then we get one of those other two dystopic attractors. So either we generate a culture where we start investing in those things radically very quickly or catastrophic risk or dystopia are the current trajectories. And what are you guys doing with consilience right now? to to tackle some of these problems. Yeah, it's a little bit strange to describe because most of the time a nonprofit or a startup or a whatever is trying to solve a fairly discrete problem using known problem solving frameworks. One of the main problems we're trying to solve is that all of humanity's problem solving frameworks don't work. They're inadequate to the nature of the problems we have. And so you know you look at the United Nations top goals for the world, the best thing that humanity has been able to come up with, these 17 sustainable development goals. We have not succeeded with any of them. Before that, they were called the Millennium Development Goals. We didn't succeed with them, so we rebranded them. So, of course, we can, we can cherry pick the positive stats to make ourselves feel good, and there's plenty of books that do that. We can cherry pick the negative stats to make ourselves feel really bad. Both are happening, right? But the net result is the catastrophic risk landscape is increasing, not decreasing. Every new technology that's come out has made an arms race. And we can't fix any of the major global tragedy of the commons issues like climate change or overfishing. I don't think we should have 17 SDGs. I don't think we should have lots of goals. I think we should have one, which is figure out how to do global coordination that is adequate to the nature of the problems we have. And that means being able to solve arms races and solve, solve tragedy of the commons type issues, multipolar traps, global coordination. If you get that, you get all the other goals. If you don't get that, you get none of them. So ultimately what we're saying is that everything that's been happening in business and nation state governments and NGOs and IGOs cumulatively is not solving these problems. Or at best, solving one problem and then externalizing harm to cause some other problems. So we need fundamentally better problem-solving processes. Um, so what are we trying to do? The central question that motivates the Consilience Project is, I can say it like, how do we build new social systems and new culture that employ emerging exponential technologies, the power of those technologies, in ways that also bind and direct those technologies to prevent catastrophic risk and in ways that ensure the kinds of civil liberties that we're interested in so the social system is a desirable, not a dystopic one. So the underlying premise is 
the thing that has the power will end up winning whether it should or not, <laughs> right? So exponential tech provides so much power that those who are directing it will end up determining the future. Right now, authoritarian nation states are directing it and companies are directing it and open societies are not. Open societies are at best implementing it for military purposes, but not to make better open societies. There are some rare exceptions like Taiwan, right? Is trying to say, how do we make a better open society using digital technologies, digital sense making, digital democracy. And that's actually a very interesting outlier case. And Estonia and a couple other places are beginning to be like, why are we doing industrial era democracy when we have all this technological capacity? And the technological capacity right now is destroying the industrial democracy by things like the Facebook sense-making catastrophe. And so if we're optimizing for a for-profit company and time on site, you're going to end up doubling down on bias and outrage. Could we apply the same information harvesting and attention directing technology in a way that increased the quality of everybody's sense-making and it was like pedagogical and developmental? Probably, right? Could we use, I know you guys are working in the blockchain environment. Could we use uncorruptible ledgers to solve corruption. Could we use blockchain technology like that for a provenance of the flow of all materials to the materials economy to be able to ensure closed loop materials economy where you're not having unrenewable use of resource or producing waste? Yeah, like that's what why that technology is so damn interesting, right? Could we uh, be recording the events of history in an uncorruptible ledger where people can't change history after the fact. So the Consilience Project, I come back to that. So the new tech has a lot of power. So we're saying that whoever's controlling that tech will end up influencing the future. That tech can get put together different ways and all the different ways of putting them together are not equally good. And so you can have a Metcalf law dynamic where you have power and networks, but have that all concentrated by a corporation or where you disintermediate the corporation, have the value of the network, but have it be distributed to the network. Those are very, very different worlds, both within Metcalf law network type dynamics. And so <clears throat> the consensus project is basically saying the way we're pursuing exponential tech does one of two things. It either ends up empowering certain social systems that currently look like corporations becoming exponentially more powerful towards a new type of feudalism or authoritarian nation states becoming more powerful towards exponential kind of authoritarianism. So that's one attractor is dystopic social systems empowered by the tech. Well, we want a new attractor, which is exponential tech applied to non-dystopic social systems and that bind and direct the exponential tech in a way that is both non-catastrophic and actually serving quality of life increasing for everybody, right? Protopically. So that's fundamentally the goal. So what are we doing towards that? To begin with, we're writing a bunch of articles and then trying to translate the content of those articles through podcasts and conversations and other things to try to create a shared understanding to support an emergent zeitgeist that gets this where we're both framing why are previous social systems, the fourth estate, education, governance, law, etc., why those are breaking under exponential tech? Hmm. Even and something like the movement from broadcast media, where all the ideas of the fourth estate were with the broadcast media, to decentralized AI optimized media, 
Well, you can never do the fourth estate again in that world the old way. You have to do a totally new way. So what is the future of a fourth estate adequate to instantiate something like a democratic process post the Facebook world and post information singularity? Well, that's a really fucking important question if you want that world to exist. And it's not a question that is really being worked on adequately. What is the future of education in a post-technological automation world look like? That's, that's a central question we, that should be a central focus of society. How do we use these technologies to make better democracy or better participatory governance that in turn are also growing the sense-making and meaning-making capacities of everyone individually and collectively? Hmm. So what we're trying to do is write the things that frame the problem space well enough and then frame the solutions that the world needs to focus its innovation on. And not necessarily say what the solution is, but give design constraints of what the solution must do and give examples so that blockchain orgs can work on it and private groups can work on it. And maybe even current institutions can say, how do we restructure our institution this way where there's both more of a motive and incentive to innovate in this direction and a set of constraints of what good innovation must look like. That's the first thing that we're seeking to do is to kind of get decentralized innovation focused on the central things with, the, with some of the right criteria in place. You know, Carol and I were talking right around the same time um, money went off the gold standard. Um, you saw this slippage between the signifier and the signified in French post-structuralist theory, right? And I do wonder what the relationship is between um, blockchain money, Bitcoin and other types of money, and this sort of post-truth, you know, all truth is just agreement moment that we live in. Just a larger crisis in sense-making and meaning-making that we've been referencing. Um, it's an interesting topic. There's a lot of ways we could talk about it, but the first thought that comes to mind is that there is a decoupling of symbol and ground in both cases. Um, most definitions of what it means for something to be true have to do with correspondence theory, right? That there is a correspondence that is mappable in some way between the belief or the representation of reality and reality that is verifiable through some epistemic process, i.e. my belief in the speed of sound and the repeated measurement of the speed of sound. Um, so that <clears throat> there is a correspondence between the symbol and the ground, right? Um, like, of course, it's true that bias influences objectivity. It's not true that there are, are not processes to systematically work to correct for bias and come closer to objectivity and correspondence. And you can see that like, the simpler the system is, the easier the philosophy of science is. The more complex it is, the more reductionism is a problem. And, and we all know we can cherry pick facts. We can decontextualize facts and we can lake off frame facts where the thing can make it through the fact checker. And yet the argument based on true facts is still totally misrepresentative. Even if the science is done, quote unquote, epistemically correctly, still produces bias. So the postmodern critique is not gibberish, right? The postmodern critique is really fucking important. It's just, you have to say, oh, so we have to correct for that. We have to figure out how do we say of all the things to research, which one should we research? How do we interpret the data properly? How do we make sure the data is contextualized and not cherry picked? That's how you take those critiques and correct them to a continually better process 
of epistemics applied to complexity. Um, if you don't do that, then you get that all truth claims are just imperialism and therefore only the only thing that exists is the game of power, but the game of power multiplied by exponential tech self-terminates. You need a better answer, which is no, there is a process to humbly and earnestly progress towards better truth, shared truth, shared sense-making. How the fuck do we do it? That's the thing we have to invest in. Uh, now, why does that relate to the capital thing? It's so interesting, but you know that famous Native American quote about when the people realize they can't eat dollars? Um the barter in a market is a pain in the ass, right? Because it's a pain in the ass to have to bring my cows there and what's a half of a cow and maybe I want someone's chicken, but they don't want my cow. They want something else. And so the currency is a very useful mediation of the exchange of goods and services. Um, but what it starts to mean is that my cows that have real, real value or my wood or my service or whatever has way less liquidity and thus optionality than the dollars have. So if I have trees in a forest, I have pretty much no liquidity and optionality on that. If I cut them down and turn them into two by fours, then I can sell those two by fours. So if I, ex if I appreciate the value of the trees, my appreciation doesn't give me any game theoretic advantage. Only the kinds of value that I can extract and exchange give me game theoretic advantage. So now I have to move from appreciating the trees to extracting them, simplifying them, turning them into two by fours. Okay, but now not everybody wants my two by fours instantly. So I don't even want to hold on to my two by fours. I want to sell them and get the cash. And then I don't even want the cash. I want digital bits that I can exchange faster because this increases the speed of my optionality. So we... We actually don't want things that have real value. We want optionality for whatever type of real value we may want in the future. So we end up choosing the thing that has no real value and only representational value over the things that have real value. But in the process, it creates a perverse incentive to destroy things that have real value in exchange for the thing and converting it into the representational value thing. That is a fundamentally perverse incentive, right? So we have to be thinking about what is real value? And how are we actually making sure that the balance sheet of the common good is increasing, that the quality of real value, not just extractable and exchangeable value, but real value is actually increasing? And how do we not just have our game theoretic optionality incentives fuck everything up? This is, again, a binding of the individual and the whole, the long-term and the short-term interests. And so similarly, like... I need nitrogen for stuff and I need copper for stuff, but I can't make nitrogen out of copper. And so in reality, those things aren't fungible. I've got to have a process of getting copper and then I got to make, I got to make my new copper stuff out of my old copper stuff. I got to go closed loop on copper, right? But I also got to make sure that I can't keep getting nitrogen through an unrenewable process forever. Nitrogen, I kind of can because of air for a long time, but I can't keep turning it into dead zones in the ocean unrenewably. So I've got to actually have a process of capturing my old nitrogen, not turning it into dead zone effluent and making my new nitrogen out of it. Okay, so I need a closed loop on nitrogen. I need a closed loop on copper. And the same is going to be true on every atom or molecular thing. Since those things aren't fungible, if I make a currency where I can buy this one or this one fungibly, then I can drive speculation that makes the value of one higher than the value of others and try to trade on margins and whatever, where I fuck up the reality of it based on the fiction of it, right? So... I need an accounting system for nitrogen to make sure that the nitrogen demands of the world are adequate and that all the old stuff is coming to the new stuff. And I need that accounting system to be different than the accounting system for copper.
So one of the key things is that the accounting is grounded in reality and that there are things that really need to not be fungible um, because in reality they aren't. And if you make them that way in a virtual layer, then of course the investment will go to wherever I get the best near-term return on the investment, which might be debasing the integrity of what actually needs to happen in the real world. So th this is basically simulation and simulacra. Do, did we create a simulation of the real world economically where I can game it and the way that I get ahead in the simulated world is actually fucking the real world that it's based on? If you want to be designing new economic systems well, you have to bind because we know that those who have more capital are not better stewards of resource. It's not a meritocracy, right? The, the Randian idea that it's a meritocracy is gibberish because I can make money illegally selling organs or child sex trafficking or weapons manufacturing of, while driving false flag narratives for weapons. I can do lots of super fucked up stuff that makes money. So, um, and production and extraction will both make me money and they're not equal things to the commons. Am I taking this, am I taking what's there and rearranging it in a way that is fundamentally more synergy and more utility for the whole, or am I entropically degrading the commons, but in a way that I get extraction value? Well, they're both going to give me money. So, if, so you've got, if you're trying to design new economic systems, you want to think about an economy as a system of human incentive. It's incentivizing people to behave a particular way. So you've got to think about, okay, fuck the money consideration. How does a real world how do the atoms and the energy and the patterns and, and the patterns of human behavior in a real world need to function to make a world that doesn't catastrophically destroy itself? And then how, what are the patterns of human behavior that need incentivized? What are the types of perverse incentive? And how would I make an economic system that actually supports the right types of incentive, the right types of um, accounting that can remove corruption because there's justice becomes more possible when there's real transparency Anybody who's working in blockchain type things, what I would hope is that they're picking the most important real problems in the world and saying, how do I facilitate solutions that will really solve those? And of all of the applications of blockchain, currencies may be the least interesting to me. Of course, currency will become digital rather than paper. Of course, that'll happen. Of course, there are things in that space that we need to do. But if we just take the same perverse things about money and move them over to a digital system, like that's not that interesting. So what would an adequate accounting system that cr created a basis for closed loops in a materials economy look like, that created a basis for non-corruption and government spending look like? Those are the types of problems that I hope people are working on. And what I really hope they don't do, the worst kind of bad faith in the world is bad faith that pretends to be good faith. Because that virtue signaling is what destroys anyone's belief in virtue as a real thing. I would much rather people, if they're really focused on the ability to speculatively drive up the value of a token and make a bunch of money because they want to do that for some reason, I'd much rather them just admit that that's the thing they want to do than say we're solving the future of governance or whatever while ultimately just driving speculative value and not solving the hard problems because that really fucks the possibility space for anyone who's really trying to solve those things. If you want to say you're solving human coordination, write a white paper where you define what the global coordination problems are. 
show that you understand the mechanics well, describe what a multipolar trap is or what coordination problem there is, and then describe what a solution in abstract must be. What are the design criteria of it? And then describe why the technological implementation of your solution is a good way of doing it. And then identify what the second and third order effects of what you're doing might be as best as you can and open it up. In fact, even create a incentive prize for anyone identifying possible externalities of it that you didn't factor so you can internalize them into the process and then build that thing. If you're earnest, do something like that. I mean, as simple as make an incentive prize for people to identify possible externalities that shows that you're actually interested and put all of their proposals on a blockchain so that you can't delete them later <laughs> and say like, you know, oh yes, we, we did, um, we did risk analysis, but then you actually throw out all the real risks that you can't solve as plausible deniability, put the solutions on a blockchain. If you're going to do that kind of thing. And then either argue against why it isn't a real thing, or if it is a real thing, start saying, how do we work to internalize that thing? Like that's not the only answer, right? But I'm just giving an example of a super simple thing that almost nobody's doing. Yeah, that's a super simple use of incentives that I don't think anybody's doing in this space. It makes a lot of sense. Yep. And the same thing, like I don't want to see a white paper that starts with what our tech thing does. I want to see a white paper that starts with a description of a problem that gets into the actual mechanics of the problem. If we're going to be saying we're solving coordination issues, explain the mechanics of where coordination breaks down. Explain what the criteria of an adequate solution would be, and then explain why your tech meets that criteria. You know, I think um, memes and mechanisms can be as coercive as violence, right? Of course. Blockchains, at least how they've been used to date, have mostly been about creating mechanisms and basically like financial dopamine vending machines, right? I think it's fair to say that money is the primary hypernormal stimuli um, because it represents optionality for every form of hypernormal stimuli. Um, I can get the food, the drugs, and ultimately the sex better with more financial optionality. Um, whatever things that I think of as a hypernormal stimuli, it represents increased capacity and optionality for. So yeah, hypernormal stimuli that orients people to the accumulation of it, regardless of the fact that that might be more through extraction than real production or speculation than real value generation. I'm hoping that there are some people who think about the catastrophic risk enough to be like, man, the other shit really does not matter in the presence of like Im impending either catastrophic risk or dystopia. And that seems eminent enough and meaningful enough that maybe I should actually reorient my life to maybe the most meaningful opportunity set in the history of the world heretofore. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping that more people in technology start to orient themselves in that way. How does capital figure into your thinking? Is this like a great technology to move forward? Clearly language is here with humans to stay, but I wonder if money is, and money is perhaps almost as ancient. We can see that there have been developments of money or economic mediation. We can see that the capitalism that the Scottish Enlightenment talked about and the thing that we have now have almost no resemblance to each other. Um, Adam Smith wasn't looking at 
AI mediated high speed trading in a way that didn't have anything to do with the production of goods or services to optimize fraction of a cent front running on billions of transactions. Like, so there's a place where there, there's a thing like the classical economic theory, I don't call capitalism, I would call something more like the belief in business or entrepreneurship, where there is this idea that demand is a real thing. And then those who have more money are those who produce the very best products and services at the very best price, which means that they're a better steward of resource to the innovation of the common. So money is actually a meritocratic system. And ultimately, the invisible hand is a good invisible hand. It's a good God because it's a system of mediated collective intelligence based on both the reality of demand and rational choice making. That's not capitalism because capitalism started to be that some people had done well enough in that system that they realized that the pools of capital made more money just through capital making money on capital than through the production of goods and services. And so capitalism started to be about the power associated with pools of capital and how to steward pools of capital into larger pools of capital, which became quite disintermediated from the production of real goods and services. Also, as behavioral economics made clear, homo economicus, rational actor, isn't a real thing, particularly once supply gets so big that there's such a radical asymmetry between supply and demand. Google is coordinated as a company and all Google users aren't in some kind of labor union coordinating their interests relative to Google. It's all of Google as a most of a trillion dollar organization employing AI and psychology and split testing and whatever against one person in terms of the game theory of the transfer of money, attention, power, whatever it is. So it started to be that manufactured demand became the biggest source of demand rather than people wanting things that would really improve the quality of their life. Manufactured demand means if I have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize profit for the company as a shareholder or director of the company, then I maximize the value of the company by both increasing the lifetime value per customer by driving demand that they didn't have. And particularly if I can drive addiction, that's awesome. Addiction is super, super good from the supply side of if I can make someone addicted to my thing, the total lifetime value of that customer is probably high. If I had to say what metrics are the best measures of the health of a civilization, I would say the inverse of addiction is one of the best metrics. Uh, the more types of addiction and the more severity of addiction across the wider percentage of the population, the more fucked that society is as a whole. The less compulsivity of people in ways that are harmful to them against their better knowing is one of the best metrics as a whole. So ultimately, supply side incentive is, uh, is anti-aligned with one of the most important success metrics for a civilization. Mm. And of course, then you have the plausible deniability of saying, hey, we're just supplying what people want. Yeah, after you fucking manufacture addiction with a radical asymmetry of capacity preying on people's weaknesses rather than using that increased capacity to help the people not have those weaknesses. There, even feudalism, at least there was this idea of noblesse oblige, the obligation of the nobility class to try to tend to the people in some good way. So to the degree that we have a new emerging feudalism, I at least hope for an emergence of an authentic noblesse oblige that says, if I have the ability to influence people's attention and influence as a result what they believe and want, what way of doing that is actually ethical, understanding things about quality of life? And then you say, oh, well, no, that would be 
too paternalistic to even think about that. So we're just going to instead give people what they want. Yeah, but then you're just optimizing for addiction on the weakest part of the human. That's fucking lame example. Oh, so you were asking the evolution of money. Um, On my blog, Civilization Emerging, I wrote some articles called the New Economic Series a bunch of years ago. I never Hmm. finished the series because I I got on the other stuff, but there's four parts to it. And the first two parts describe what a transitional system of economics that could interface with the current one, but be vectoring in the right direction must be in terms of criteria. And then what a post-transitional system that could be long-term sustainable must be. And then the third one goes into understanding the nature of perverse incentive and what it would take to internalize it. And the last one goes into understanding the nature of money and both um, what's wrong with liquidity and fungibility of currency and private property ownership that has to be factored into new macroeconomic structures. Um, So can we change? Like there's there's a lot of things that we take as axioms, like you have to have a labor force and people don't want to do those jobs. So you have to extrinsically incent the people to do the thing. Well, technological automation actually removes that axiom. So you got kind of got to rethink capitalism from scratch. So that whole axiom of why the invisible hand creates a system of real collective intelligence. No, that's actually bullshit. Um, Demand drives supply. Well, as, as soon as that's not the case, we have to really rethink through the meritocracy of it, right? So, and this doesn't mean that we get to communism or socialism. It means we're going to get to totally new systems that we didn't have before. But we have to start by understanding what healthy, good coordination would look like and what healthy systems of human motivation that include but transcend extrinsic incentive that are both how do we facilitate intrinsic incentive? How do we enculturate people who have intrinsic incentives that are actually a meaningful part of their behavior that are aligned with not only their good, but the the good of the whole that they're a part of. And how do we have extrinsic systems of incentive that are not externality causing or fundamentally rivalrous? So no, I do not believe that fungible currency mostly held as private property will be a part of how the future works. I think both change in the nature of how we get access to resource, where access and possession get decoupled in a lot of areas. In some areas, they'll stay coupled, but in many areas, there will be commonwealth resources that people have access to where their access, unlike possession, doesn't decrease other people's access, like shopping carts at a grocery store. There's enough shopping carts for peak time that everybody has access, but not everybody has to have them. We can obviously see something like Uber multiplied by self-driving cars disintermediated by blockchain being able to be a future of transportation where there's enough cars for peak time for everyone to have access to the very best of transportation, but nobody has to own cars. We can see a bunch of places where the my access mediated through possession decreases other people's access as fundamentally rivalrous, but my access to a commonwealth resource structured rightly doesn't have to do that. So we remove the perverse incentive. And if then my access to those commonwealth resources makes me more generative. And what I generate goes back to enriching the commonwealth. Other people are actually incented for me to have creative resources because the creative resources I have are directly enriching the commonwealth that they then have access to. So we can see that unlike the scarcity of atoms and the scarcities of energy in terms of their thermodynamics, we can see that software is fundamentally not rivalrous in the same way. I can 
give it to you and not lose my own access to it. We make it scarce through intellectual property to make money off it based on scarcity. That's an economic system that is also misaligned with creating abundance for everybody. So we end up manufacturing scarcity artificially because the price goes up for those who hold it. So could we have a world where the the software is not only not rivalrous, it's anti-rivalrous. The more people who I share the bits with, the more people innovating in the space, the better an access of Commonwealth I can end up having. You can start to see the possibility of less rivalrous, even towards anti-rivalrous, actual real economy. And you've got to make sure that the incentive systems associated are actually driving in that direction. Totally. That's a a beautiful vision. Um, Daniel, we've covered a lot of ground. As we start to widen down, I think it would be cool to dig into the North Star, which is, in your own words, like, how do we create a society that doesn't suck? (laughs) Um, And so I I think there's a deep and kind of subtle, but like definitely an optimism hiding out in in all of your thinking here. and so we're wondering, is what's on the far side of social coherence? And what does that beautiful, coherent civilization look like? Um, you can dive into your cosmology a bit. Feel free to get uh, into the philosophical ideal here as we wrap up. Fundamentally, what you're asking is, what, what is a meaningful human life? Mm-hmm. And what would a good civilization be in terms of optimizing the possibility of that for everybody and enduringly. And so it seems like a lot of very pragmatic stuff, like preventing catastrophes and coordination systems and building tech that has the right dispositions, but ultimately towards what is uh, the center of that is fundamentally existential philosophy on what is desirable at all, what is worth desiring. This is actually a way of thinking about it is previous people, people unlike other animals have the ability to change the world that they're in quite a lot, right? Next to us, the most environment modifying creatures like a beaver. But then you look at LA as you fly in, in the airplane, and you're looking at just as far as you can see in every direction, this orthogonal grid of concrete. And you're like, wow, we're we are very environment modifying creatures. And so if we can make a totally different world, and at this point with exponential tech, we can actually genetically engineer different kinds of creatures. We can think about shipping our brains. At the core comes, what is a desirable world? And then you realize, well, depending upon where I grew up, I would desire different things because even desire ends up being conditioned. Okay, so now I have to say, what is worth desiring? If, If I remove myself from the conditioned desires, what is the basis of what is really worth desiring and how do we know? And then how do we build a world that's in service to that? I think any answer to what is uh, a meaningful human life grounds in experience. And, and so people are on their deathbed and they're reflecting on what was most meaningful. And it is always the depth of connection they had, love that was shared, depth of experience, and their regrets are always around love that they didn't express and things that were meaningful to them that they didn't act on that ultimately related to their time of experience ending and how they would have wanted to have used it. So a framework I use to think about what is a meaningful human life is that there's these three different modes, a mode of being, a mode of doing, and a mode of becoming. Mode of being 
is fundamentally about experience, about experiencing the world as it is. And we can say the essence of that is about taking in the beauty of life as it is. And when someone says make a better world, ultimately they're talking about doing something that increases people's access to have that experience of the beauty of the world in some way, whether it's creating art or protecting the environment or whatever it is, right? So the ground is experience. And so the mode of being is taking the beauty of the world. The mode of doing is add beauty to the world, either protect the beauty that's already there, which is a lot of the work or add to it. And I would say, if you think about the artistic endeavors and the innovation, the scientific endeavors, the education, it is the desire to do that. And becoming is increase my capacity for being and doing, increase my capacity to appreciate life and increase my capacity to add to it. And I would say a meaningful human life is a virtuous relationship between those three modes. So when I think of what is a civilization on the far side of coherence, it has so much more to do with intrinsic motivation than extrinsic motivation. It has to do with a place where what is sacred to people is their connection to reality, their direct, not a belief, right? Their direct sensorial connection to the beauty and meaningfulness of reality that they're moved by. And anything they do is arising from wanting to be in service to that. It's the only thing that makes sense to do is that there is a, a movement from that that says, how do I add to and be of service to that? And then how do I develop myself to be able to continue to, to do that better? So you think about a future of education that is not just schools. It's how do we make a whole culture where the, the whole of the developmental life of that new being is facilitating the depth of their appreciation for and sensitivity to and connection to reality and the depth of their connection to their own interests and fascinations and then their desire to develop themselves in connection to that and their capacity to do that and the types of respect-mediated coordination that emerge out of that, maybe that would be a beginning of how I would answer the question. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Like you said, um, <laughs> that could be a whole other <laughs> two-hour conversation itself. But Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a simple but useful model. Well, gosh. Um, Daniel, I think we kind of went through all the questions that we had and then some that emerged during our time. Um, if there's nothing else that you want to say or speak to, um, we just wanted to thank you so much for your time. We knew the way that this year started off that we had to have you on sooner rather than later. Thank you so much for your time and um, wish you well with everything you're doing with the consultants project. Um, just a note for our listeners, obviously links to that, the essays Daniel mentioned on a few other goodies will be in the show notes. So be sure to keep an eye out for them as well. All right. I like what you guys are doing with this podcast and thank you for having me on. And uh, I hope something was interesting or useful to people. And if there are people who are working on technologies earnestly focused on trying to solve some of those problems, uh, I would love to see those. 